This podcast is brought to you by Intel vPro. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Stiedsel as a senior writer here at The Washington Post. Today, we have two segments on racial disparities in cancer treatment and outcomes. And I'm delighted first to welcome Dr. Brian Rivers. He's the director of the Cancer Health Equity Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Rivers, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here with you this morning. Thank you for joining us. And a word to our audience before we begin. You can send questions for Dr. Rivers and our next guest by tweeting them to at Post Live, at Post Live, that's the tag. Send us your questions. Dr. Rivers, I'd like to ask by, start by asking about the big picture. Um, what is the what are the racial disparities? What is this gap like in everything from diagnosis and treatment to death rates? So yeah, so we've um, seen a persistent gap uh, between uh, racial and ethnic groups as it relates to the burden of cancer. Uh, for example, have the highest burden of cancer-related mortality in comparison to other racial and ethnic groups. So we don't see this equal um, cancer as being this equal opportunity uh, disease that impacts all populations, but we're seeing that cancer is disproportionately impacting some populations more so than others. So has that changed over time? Have we seen any improvement in recent years? And if so, why? Yeah, um, so that's exciting news. So, you know, over the past couple of years, we've seen a decline in cancer-related mortality for all racial and ethnic groups here in the United States. Um, and and, and there, there's been a host of, um, of factors attributed to this decline. Um, clearly, the investment of the United States, for example, the National Institutes of Health, their investment in cancer and biomedical research has really driven uh, progress as it relates to better understanding the key drivers of cancer um, and, and cancer health disparities. Uh, we've also seen um, scientific breakthroughs um, just at a phenomenal rate at the past 10 years um, in collaboration with public and private partnerships um, that have really also contributed to this decline that we're seeing um, in overall cancer-related mortality um, you know, here in the United States among all racial and ethnic groups. So we are making tremendous progress, um, but, you know, we got to continue to, you know, uh, work diligently to make sure that the gap continues to shrink um, and, and, and hopefully normalize to a line there where there is no gap and cancer, uh, you know, impacts all individuals, you know, at, you know, at the same rate. So that's very exciting and positive news, but it sits against a backdrop of increased awareness of structural racism. And what does that look like in the healthcare system? Yeah, so now we're starting to understand, you know, especially in the past two or three years, there have been, you know, very targeted, um, you know, funding mechanisms through the National Institutes of Health, really trying to ascertain what are the key drivers, what are the key factors associated with these disparities. And so we look at it through this multifactorial lens, if you will, but we just do not focus on individual level factors, but we also look at uh, organizational level factors, those factors within health systems that, you know, may be uh, barriers or serve as impediments to some individuals receiving their optimal, um, you know, care. Um, you know, and and so we we organizations are having to look at. Um, you know, within their structures and understand their processes better in terms of how they're meeting the health care needs, especially as it relates to cancer uh, prevention, 
uh, detection, um, diagnosis, and treatment, you know, especially for diverse populations that are often impacted by social determinants of health. And so organizations are looking at their policies, ensuring that they're fair, that they're equitable, and that they really meet the needs of all individuals that they're seeing within their organization. I'd love it if you could be a, just a little bit more specific about that, about how you measure those inequities in, in the system and how you go about addressing them. Sure. And, and so there's a variety of ways in which we can um, you know, measure these inequities. Um, you know, uh, of course, we're looking at different drivers of healthcare disparities, such as health literacy, such as patient provider communication, um, such as you know, provider interactions, um, providers clinical decision making, ensuring that they have the right data to really account for you know, um, you know, any potential dis discrimination, any potential you know, bias, any potential racism that exists in terms of how individuals, um, you know, see themselves, and and usually this is best addressed through a um, you know internal audit, um, you know, of the organizational policies, looking at patient reported outcomes, um, and, and then seeing you know what things can they do differently um, if they're not meeting the needs of individuals. So, for example, if a patient is coming in and they're you know um, encountering tremendous um, issues related to their social determinants of health, and these are the factors where per one person lives, one works, one plays. If they're saying that there are some challenges with transportation, with childcare, or other factors that are impeding their optimal engagement with the healthcare system, um, you know, organizations can then put forth strategies to help overcome those challenges. And then on the personal level, so the provider level, um, researchers and doctors are so conscious of this notion of bias and how they design trials and how they treat people, but how does it manifest itself in day-to-day -day interactions with healthcare providers? Yeah, so it manifests itself in a variety of ways, and a lot of it um, could be conscious and as well as unconscious bias, um, you know, through interacting with diverse patients. And so, you know, how this looks in terms of, um, you know, what treatment is recommended to certain patients, perhaps based on their insurance status, um, perhaps based on, you know, um, existing comorbidities, um, also, uh, you know, their ability um, to effectively engage and adhere to treatment protocols. Uh, oftentimes, uh, these are the factors that, you know, providers, uh, you know, have to make real tough decisions. I mean, I don't want to, you know, simplify, you know, these interactions or these engagements with the patients, but it's a very complicated process. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, we, we, we have to, you know, relook at, you know, these interactions, re-examine them and decide, you know, what is the best course of action for this patient sitting before me, as opposed to this approach that, uh, you know, this is a standard for all individuals. Uh, we're, I think we're starting to really realize um, that, you know, in order for us to achieve optimal uh, care delivery models, you know, that we will have to move toward models of precision medicine, giving the patient what they need, uh, when they need it, in the right amount that they need it. And you're seeing more and more research along, um, you know, better understanding some of those needs at the patient level, um, as well as providers' capacity to deliver um, these really tailored and targeted approaches to patients. And so we're, okay. seeing, we're starting to see more and more of an advent of precision medicine within cancer care. And, and I think that's really going to help drive down a lot of the disparities that we're seeing here in the United States as it relates to cancer. I want to take a little step back and ask you a little bit about medical school. On one level, whether people are being taught to be aware of and address these kinds of unconscious bias that you're talking about, and then secondly, whether we're training enough doctors, nurse practitioners, carers of color to encourage people to engage 
with people who look like them in the healthcare system. Sure. And then that's an extremely important point um, as it relates to workforce diversity and, you know, Morehouse School of Medicine, for example, um, where we're being very intentional about recruiting individuals that we know will go back and serve their communities, um, individuals from diverse uh, backgrounds, whether it's African-American, whether it's, you know, Latinx or any other, um, you know, underrepresented minority group here in the United States. We intentionally reach out to those um, students, realizing that, you know, once they're um, re, um, two and trained, they're more likely to go back to their respective communities and have an impact. And, you know, those are some of the measures that we're taking here at Morehouse School of Medicine um, through the Cancer Health Equity Institute. And I know many other organizations have been really driving, you know, uh, workforce diversity, ensuring adequate representation of um, diverse individuals in the care delivery model. That includes nurses, physicians, social workers, navigators, even those in the front office of most of your health systems. Just having that level of diversity, realizing that, you know, when patients see individuals who look like them, oftentimes the outcomes are much, much better in comparison to um, individuals that may not, um, you know, look exactly like them or share a, um, a, a model or a value system um, in, you know, in common. I do want to ask you about COVID because it, at once, at the same time, it highlighted the inequities that you're talking about and made them very, very clear. It also stole resources from primary care screening as, as we pushed resources towards testing and vaccines for COVID. How do you feel coming out or as COVID becomes endemic, how do you feel it will have an effect going ahead on a very specialized area like cancer treatment? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, there's some research studies have, that have suggested that there's been a sharp um, decline in cancer screenings among all groups in the United States for obvious re reasons related to the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic had a devastating impact on our healthcare system and really, you know, um, transferred the delivery service models in many health systems where the focus really wasn't on, you know, chronic care, just probably for those, you know, re really extreme cases. But for the most part, you know, as every health system in this country in urban and rural areas, um, they were really focused on, uh, you know, trying to better understand and, and manage the impacts of, of COVID-19. And so, you know, there's been studies, there's been reports conducted over the past couple of years that really suggest that we're going to see perhaps an, uh, an uptick in, um, you know, advanced stage cancers because so many individuals for the past two years um, did not go and engage in their uh, preventive uh, cancer screenings. Um, and, and so, you know, that has a tremendous impact, um, impact of course, on, um, you know, the, the, the cancer treatment model because now, you know, the cancers are, um, you know, less treatable and, and the, the, the risk for you know, complications as well as reduced health related quality of life, you know, it, it is decreased. And, and so, but, you know, but at the same time, while we have these challenges and, and, and we're seeing the devastating impacts or the residual impacts, if you will, as it relates to um, cancer care, we're also encouraged at the investment of this country um, and, and, and as well as, you know, entities outside of this country, how they invested in our healthcare and our research infrastructure that now provides us with a new landscape that should help drive discoveries at a much, much rapid rate, um, as we saw during COVID-19. I'm hearing so much optimism and also concern, and it's a very interesting mix. It feels as if we have a moment of opportunity going ahead. But one of the key issues, and you've raised it a couple of times already, is health insurance. We have millions of people in this country without health insurance. How does that affect the diagnosis and then follow-up treatment for people who do not have that access? 
So, you know, unfortunately, um, health insurance really drives, you know, which services one receives in the healthcare system. And we have to increase our advocacy. We have to continue our efforts as it relates to, um, you know, health for all, um, if you will, um, and, and ensuring that individuals are adequately insured um, to really get the necessary prevention that they need, as well as the necessary, um, you know, treatment that they need uh, related to, you know, their cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, you know, otherwise it will be a tremendous challenge. Um, you know, going forward for, you know, the scientific advances to be made available um, to all individuals, um, but then realizing that some individuals do not have clear access to them because of their insurance status. And, and so, you know, that's the key driver, um, uh, unfortunately, to a lot of the disparities that we're seeing, because once individuals get in the healthcare system, um, they're realizing that, you know, they're not able to um, obtain everything that they need um, to, to ensure optimal health and a measurable quality of life. Um, so it's very problematic and we still have much, much work to do um, in this regard. If you could wave a magic wand and redesign the healthcare system with insurance, would you build upon the Affordable Care Act or choose a different model? How would you redesign health insurance and coverage for people in this country? Well, I mean, you know, I, I have not seen a perfect plan to date, but, you know, I would build and expand upon the Affordable Care Act. I mean, I think it, you know, really brought health care, um, especially during the pandemic, to a lot of individuals um, who historically have not been represented in the um, in, in, in the um, area of having you know, adequate health insurance. Um, during the pandemic, we saw so many people losing their jobs and, you know, therefore their health insurance, um, you know, was unavailable to them. Um, and many turned to the Affordable Care Act that allowed some continuation or some continuity of engagement in terms of receiving health care. And so what I would do and advocate for is an expansion of the Affordable Care Act, um, making sure that all states are able to, uh, at least the residents of various states are able to benefit from uh, the Affordable Care Act, ensuring again that all individuals have, you know, the necessary access to prevention, um, to, you know, timely diagnosis, as well as um, the various treatment options that exist, uh, perhaps standard of care, or if not even access to participate on a clinical trial. Another potential that we've been hearing about recently is that was, there was a bipartisan committee yes, yesterday that announced a push or um, towards a more centralized public health system. And of course, we can't separate public health with these big issues from the very specialized care you're addressing as well on the other end um, of treatment. But do you think that's something with a, a, a bigger role for the federal government and more outreach through the kinds of public health systems we already have in this country, but in a very splintered fashion? Sure. You know, and again, I think that's one of the lessons we learned during COVID-19 um, in terms of our um, health infrastructure, our public health infrastructure, and the need to ensure the connectivity of the infrastructure um, to, you know, primary care or even specialty care. Um, so, you know, what that entails is decentralizing some services, looking at new um, agents as part of the care delivery model, looking at the role of patient navigators, for example, that are able to operate within clinical settings, but then also 
non-clinical settings to ensure some level of continuity of care. Also seeing the extension of technology and in in, in connecting, you know, public health departments um, in terms of messaging, health messaging. We saw that that was a huge issue during COVID-19, getting um, health messaging out to diverse populations and then ensuring that the messaging was trustworthy. Um, you know, that's another factor as well. Um, and, and so, you know, there were some unique opportunities. There were some unique approaches taken during COVID-19 that I think we should really learn from, that we should um, scale and we should sustain to ensure that, um, you know, there is this sort of matrix model of individuals who can go into their respective communities who may have trouble accessing healthcare facilities, who may live in rural settings that also have, um, you know, some issues in traveling um, to access health um, healthcare facilities. Um, to ensure that they're able to optimally move across a cancer continuum. Um, there's some tremendous models I think that we can continue to build from um, and, and realizing that some services can adequately be decentralized through telemedicine, through teleeducation, um, through um, telenavigation, um, you know, as well as technology. So there are some issues, and, and I'm so glad you raised telemedicine because it's been key, I think, in behavioral health and helping people to adjust in ways that could help them with issues like cancer. Um, do you see this as something that's going to survive the pandemic and grow in coming years, or are we sort of a dodgy moment now with reining back in telemedicine? You know, I think, you know, while telemedicine has some shortcomings and have, um, you know, some challenges, you know, I think for the most part, people found it um, highly valuable. Um, you know, again, I think we need to characterize the best utility of telemedicine um, if, if it's in regards to uh, remote surveillance or monitoring of patients, um, if it's to, um, you know, engage patients with their providers on a more continuous basis. You know, I think those are some of the favorable, um, you know, aspects of telemedicine. The challenges come in terms of the areas in which individuals reside and if the broadband is strong enough um, for individuals to really take full advantage of um, you know the telemedicine platform um, you know that's another uh, tremendous issue um, that we're, we're, we're looking at uh, I know here in the state of Georgia but then also around the United States as a whole in terms of strengthening that bandwidth realizing that the efficiency that comes with telemedicine uh, if that patient does not have to travel especially if they reside in rural areas you know um, miles and miles just to access um, you know, um, their health care, um, you know, I, I, I've seen you know, it, it, it fare very well on the side of the patient. Dr. Rivers, we're running out of time, but I want to ask you one last question. You referenced earlier on the, the benefits you've gained from this administration and President Biden certainly has addressed um, health inequities. What more would you like to see happen? What more do you think the federal government could do to help with this enormous problem? You know, yeah, um, and I definitely salute this administration for their forward thinking as it relates to really, um, you know, developing and expanding the infrastructure, especially as it relates to, you know, cancer care prevention and delivery. Um, we saw um, um, President Biden in uh, recent months um, released the, initi uh, the initiative entitled the Moonshot, the Cancer Moonshot. Um, that's extremely encouraging. You know, initially when that um, initiative was first launched during President Obama's administration, um, it held great promise in terms of accelerating the advances in cancer uh, treatment as well as prevention. And now we're seeing it realized again with two specific goals and it's really to, you know, ensure, um, you know, all individuals are able to be um, screened for cancers that are screened. Um, and, and then ensure that there's adequate representation of individuals and in various cancer, um, you know, um, research studies. But again, realizing that today's medicine is yesterday, yesterday's research. And so with that investment from the cancer moonshot, I would like to see it go 
into, you know, very, um, you know, diverse settings, diverse contexts, um, contexts that historically have not been adequately funded, such as historically black colleges and universities, um, you know, have, who have very strong ties to different minority groups and populations, you know, commensurate with the student body that they, um, you know, service. And, and, and really, you know, developing infrastructure in these um, other institutions, um, minority serving institutions, historically black colleges and universities, um, the black, the four black medical schools here in the United States, and really investing intentionally to ensure that those populations that are disproportionately impacted, that are suffering from cancer-related mortality at alarming rates, you know, are able to, you know, uh, have access to, um, you know, needed resources as well as scientific breakthroughs. And so that's what I would like to see with the investment um, of the cancer moonshot. And I think President Biden, um, you know, we really appreciate his efforts. His uh, wife, Dr. Jill Biden, visited our campus, Morehouse School of Medicine, a couple of years ago to better understand our infrastructure as well as some of the work that we're doing in this cancer space. And to see that continued and see that further expanded and scaled, you know, um, you know I think we'll be on the right track. Thank you. That's a powerful message to finish on access to resource and breakthroughs. Dr. Brian Rivers, thank you so much for joining us at Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. And I'll be back in a few minutes with my next guest taking this overview to a very local plane about Baltimore. Stick with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good afternoon. My name is Camille Hretzka, and I am Vice President and Head of Oncology U.S. Medical at AstraZeneca. I'm pleased to be here today as part of an important initiative for AstraZeneca, the Your Cancer Program. This program aims to empower individuals working to redefine cancer care. As we've just heard, people in underserved communities continue to face challenges accessing optimal cancer care. Closing these critical <coughs> gaps requires multifaceted approach with a focus on clinical research, where diverse representation remains a challenge. To discuss why this matters, I'm speaking today with Hope Paul, CEO of BreastCancer.org, and Dr. Nadine Barrett, Director of the Center for Equity in Research at the Duke Clinical Translational Science Institute. Dr. Barrett is also an advisor to BreastCancer.org's health equity initiatives. BreastCancer.org is part of the community effort pushing for greater diversity in breast cancer research, an area where Black women in particular have been vastly underrepresented despite experiencing worse outcome compared to other groups. Hope and Dr. Barrett, welcome. Very happy to have you today. You. Healthcare disparities have been known for a long time. However, the pandemic has put a spotlight on these inequities and the need to urgently act on them. One of the biggest barriers we see in the underserved communities is medical mistrust. Dr. Barrett, can you please share your perspective on how does mistrust impact clinical trial representation and how we can build trust? Oh, absolutely. An excellent question. Thank you. You know, historically, health systems and research have not been trustworthy. And so in delivering care, when we think about research, particularly to underrepresented, minoritized and marginalized populations, 
And really creating trustworthy organizations requires well-defined community-informed programs, engaged strategic priorities that allows us to really start thinking about what are the factors that's impacting this, including implicit biases, stereotypes, and policies within our institutions that could be leading to these, neg these negative outcomes. There's also opportunities like Just Ask, a training that I developed that allows us to really start thinking about how do we arm our teams with the kind of resources they need to be able to build a trustworthy organization. And last but not least, I'll add that community engagement, authentic community engagement is critical. And that means that we are actually engaging with our communities, using their information to inform what we do and partnering with them as experts in their own right to be able to advance health equity in this space. Well, thanks for that. Indeed, building trust is a critical step if we want to improve health equity and patient outcomes. Hope, can I maybe ask you on your side, what, um, what are some of the other areas that the cancer community needs to address to bring about meaningful change in clinical trial representation? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, and as Dr. Barrett was, was describing and you were asking about, the mistrust is so at the core of all of this. And I think everything that we speak about really emanates from that. So uh, at breastcancer.org and other advocacy community groups, we are all trying to really help women understand, people understand the realities, the truths, have the knowledge so that they know what they really have in front of them as opportunities. So dispelling the myths is really important as a first step and then really arming people with the information so that they can get the care that they, they really deserve with clinical trials. So letting them know that there are things that can be done about the things they're concerned about, the costs, the transportation issues, the eligibility issues. How do they find a trial that really can fit their situation? How do they have the conversation, a complicated conversation with physicians about something that is so hard for them to understand and to talk about? So helping people understand how they can step into these conversations and helping them understand that there's a lot they can do to overcome whatever barriers they perceive to be there or that actually are there is really important. And that's something that we and a lot of other organizations are striving to do. Yes, thanks. And indeed, we, we know that disparities in breast cancer outcomes and mortality among people of color, especially black women, are well known and need to be addressed. Can I ask you both to share how you think diversity in research can help to ensure that all patients benefit from the latest scientific advancements in maybe just one sentence? Maybe we can yes, start with um you, Sure, absolutely. And I, I, I really love that and appreciate that question. I think one of the key things that we have to think about here is that increasing diversity in clinical research and trials is rigorous science. Anything less than that is actually not really allowing us to have the type of impact that we can have in advancing health equity. So the, the, if we really see it from a researcher standpoint, it's just really critical for us to see it as rigorous science and not just science or a practice to just do. That's such a great point. Yeah. I would say, too, that we really we try very hard to help individuals understand that two things are going on. Yes, they are contributing to science and for future generations. They also are availing themselves often of the very best care they possibly can get for their own situation. And when they understand and can go into it knowing that, um, I think that can really help them swing through that, that door. 
Well, thank you so much to both of you for sharing your perspective and your expertise. Clinical trial diversity is critical to improving equitable access to cancer care and to helping discover and develop treatments that work for all of those who need it, not just some. The incredible efforts already underway are very encouraging. You can find more information about AstraZeneca's commitment to catalyze change by visiting yourcancer.org. Thank you to the Washington Post for hosting this forum, and thank you again very much, Hope Wall and Dr. Nadine Barrett, for the very important work you and the team at breastcancer.org are doing to support people impacted by cancer, and, and also for this discussion. Now, I'll turn it back over to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. We're now going to take some of these big questions and look at, look at them at a city level. I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Shauna Ntiri. She's the medical director of the Baltimore City Cancer Program. Dr. Ntiri, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. It's a pleasure to be here with you. We're really pleased to have you, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot. And a word to our audience before we start, you can tweet your questions for Dr. Ntiri to at postlive, use the tag at postlive, and we'll try to get to a couple of them. So Dr. Ntiri, give me an overview. What is the Baltimore City Cancer Program? And is it replicated in many cities across the country or something unique to Baltimore? Sure, yeah, I can speak to that. So the Baltimore City Cancer Program is a community-based initiative of the University of Maryland, the Greenenbaum Comprehensive Cancer Center. Um, we are actually getting ready to celebrate our 21st year um, in August of this year. And it is a program that was initiated through funds from the Maryland Cigarette Restitution Fund. So we're funded by the Maryland Department of Health. Um, we are unique uh, just because of the geography of Maryland that we are the only city in Maryland, but there are county-based programs throughout the state, throughout the country. We're actually modeled after the Centers for Disease Controls Program, the National Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program. So um, there are similar programs that offer um, screening opportunities for women throughout the country. And are these services provided free? You said you had funding through, I guess, tobacco money, but uh, and sure. then the Department of Health. But what what does it mean for patients? Yeah, for patients, it does mean that they have access to, um, in the situation of our program, no cost to patient breast cancer, cervical cancer, and colorectal cancer screenings, um, which is really important. Dr. Rivers mentioned in his earlier segment that a huge component of access is whether or not individuals are insured. And our um, program specifically deals with individuals who are either underinsured or who have no insurance at all, and so who may not have access to this treatment. And our program provide services ranging from community outreach and engagement, education, which has been mentioned is really important. People need to have the information in order to decide how best to move forward for themselves, all the way through survivorship support. And all of these services are provided indeed at no cost to individuals. So give me a little picture of how this works. Are sure. you in mobile vans going around the city or clinics and which parts of the city are you engaged in? Great question. So we provide services throughout the question, or throughout the city, I'm sorry. Um, and our, our home base is the University of Maryland Greenenbaum Comprehensive Cancer Center. So we don't use mobile facilities. One of the benefits of being in Baltimore City is that access to care is never far away. Um, so we use different models. We have our individuals, our team um, consists of community outreach workers 
who go out into the community to meet individuals where they are. So thinking pre-COVID, it was a lot of things like health fairs and going to um, church functions and those types of things. COVID obviously has changed our opportunities to engage with individuals. And so we've been doing things like engaging with folks over social media, um, going to food drives to meet folks where folks were. We had outreach workers who were going to COVID testing sites and COVID vaccination sites just to provide information about the program. Then once individuals are enrolled in the program, uh, we do our uh, screening services throughout the city at uh, radiology sites. Here in my office at Family Medicine, we have providers who provide services, providers who are throughout the city. We work with uh, federally qualified health centers as well. If an individual is ultimately diagnosed with cancer, they are brought to our cancer center here at the Greenbaum Cancer Center to receive all treatment. And I think you mentioned which kinds of cancer you focus on, but maybe you could spell out a little bit more clearly and why you focus on those particular cancers. Sure. So the Baltimore City Cancer Program focuses on three cancers. The first is breast. Uh, the second is cervical cancer, and the third is colorectal. Um, in part, when the program first started 20 plus years ago, um, there were designations made by the Cigarette Restitution Fund in terms of who would manage different cancers. And so we, we were provided those cancers, but I think the, the larger uh, importance with those cancers is those are cancers that have significant impact in terms of morbidity and mortality for cancer, particularly in Baltimore City. And other huge inequities within the city. I think the city, I, I forget exactly the racial makeup of the city, but it's certainly more than 50% African-American. Um, are, are, are those other cancers less deadly for other populations within the city? Yeah, if you're speaking specifically about African-Americans and Latino populations, certainly there are disparities in terms of which communities are impacted. And you know Baltimore well, Francis, you know that even where you live by zip code can make a difference. And so there have been a lot of studies that look, depending on if people live in West Baltimore, if they live in certain um, communities within certain zip codes, that the disparities are increased. And those disparities tend to align with other health issues. And your specialty is family medicine. It seems so important to me, but tell me how your role as a family doctor who sees people of all ages plays into addressing these inequities. Yeah, I think, you know, as a family physician, it's a privilege to be able to impact these inequities. We are, my office is housed in, in Baltimore. We deal with um, individuals who are coming from underserved communities, definitely. And I think as a family physician, one of the beautiful things is you get to form relationships with patients. And so through forming those relationships, we build trust. We've, there's been some talk about trust there. And through trust, you're able to impact inequities one person at a time. It's one of the things I really enjoy about being a family physician and also working with the Baltimore City Cancer Program is that when I put on my white coat and I'm working as a family doc, I get to deal with one patient at a time, one family at a time. Um, while with the Baltimore City Cancer Program, it really is a population level approach. And I think both are needed. And it's 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 awesome to do um, the work in both areas. And it's, it's really neat to understand the impact you have. I mean, obviously a lot of my patients are impacted by cancer. I have patients right now who are actively going through cancer treatment. And to be able to be there and to provide support and to provide information um, and trusted information really is important. One of the huge transformations of the pandemic was the advance in telemedicine. Have you yeah. adopted that at the cancer program and, and how are you doing it? Yeah, so for the cancer program, uh, for the most part, what it meant 
was just reaching out and people with people and checking in on them, right? For cancer screening themselves, again, if we're doing breast, cervical, and colorectal, you do need to be in contact. But we had our patients in contact with our specialists. So we have a whole team of breast surgeons who help us over at Green and Balm. We're able to interact with patients to see where they were, particularly those who had a prior diagnosis of treatment so they didn't fall off. Um, I think as a primary care physician also, it was really, it was equally as important, um, you know, patients who were undergoing cancer cancer treatment and didn't necessarily want to come into the office, telehealth provided a way for us to remain in contact and provide that support from a distance, but still much needed support indeed. So telehealth seems as if it could be such an equalizer and really give people access and maintain contact with people between formal appointments. But sure. it also could be an, uh, the opposite, right? I mean, some people have greater digital literacy, greater access to uh, the equipment. What's your feeling? And I'm sure you don't have studies yet, but how are you seeing it play out in the community you are working with? Yeah, I mean, I think patients embraced it. I think patients embraced it. I do think you you are right. Absolutely. You have to acknowledge that there's a digital divide. Again, being in Baltimore City, most folks have access to the technology that they need. Um, for us, telehealth includes everything from a telephone call all the way through a video visit. And I think we accommodate patients and meet them where they are. I always like to tell folks that one of my favorite patients to visit uh, via telehealth is a 92-year-old woman who was going through lung cancer treatment. And so at that time, really didn't want her coming into the office to potentially be exposed. She had her daughter right alongside her, of course, to help her to get connected to telemedicine. But it really was important. Um, that is a patient that if I didn't have access to telehealth, I probably just wouldn't have seen her during that time. And it really was important to have access. Yeah, that's a very inspiring story in 92 as well. Good luck to her. I yeah. hope she does well. Um, you've mentioned trusted messaging and trusted ambassadors, but maybe mm -hmm. you can talk a little bit more. We wrote so much about the need for trusted ambassadors with vaccines during COVID. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit what it means for um, cancer. Yeah, I think in cancer, you know, um, thinking about a couple of programs that we have within Green and Balm, we have the Office of Community Outreach and Engagement, which uh, employs cancer health ambassadors, uh, which are staff members who go out into the community to do outreach and education. We also have a program where we essentially educate gatekeepers from the community. So we'll invite lay community members to get educated on cancer. So they learn about wellness, they learn about health, they learn about cancer screening and treatment and diagnosis. So they can take that back to their communities wherever they think there's a need and we know that they're providing evidence-based information that is accurate with the Baltimore City Cancer Program, similar thing. We have staff who've been with us for the 20 years of the program. And I think that builds a lot for trust in terms of consistent messaging, in terms of consistent faces, in terms of coordinated messaging where people know. Um, and also if you have a patient who's ultimately diagnosed with cancer, right? Because a lot of the folks who come into our program are coming in at first for education. They're just learning what is breast cancer? How do you screen for breast cancer? How do you treat for breast cancer? Same for cervical cancer cancer and for colorectal cancer. And then we walk them through the continuum of care. They don't necessarily know um, when, they're, when they're screened that they may ultimately be diagnosed with a cancer. But I think if and when a person is diagnosed with a cancer and they look back and say, that's someone that I met in the community who came out into my community to provide education, there certainly is a level of trust. And our outreach workers uh, attend appointments with patients. They will help patients to um, process their information. There'll be another set of ears, even if people have family members there. 
as you know, a diagnosis of cancer can be extremely overwhelming. And so just having someone there to help navigate, Dr. Rivers mentioned patient navigation, um, which our outreach workers do, just provides a lot of support and care. This makes me go back to insurance again, because you're providing this wonderful service, bringing people in, providing free screening. And then supposing you um, come up with some tricky form of cancer that's going to need very specialized care. How do you help people move on through the system, which can be a, a long and very technical process? Sure. Yeah, definitely. So again, any patient who comes to our program, it's not as though if they're diagnosed with cancer, ultimately we then say you need to pay for this. Their services are covered. So the Baltimore City Cancer Program has a portion of its grant funding that allows for treatment and diagnosis. Maryland also has a program um, that covers for treatment for both breast and cervical cancer. And so as needed, we'll help patients to transition to that program, actually help them to fill out the forms, make phone calls to do a warm handoff. And we continue to work with our patients through survivorship. We sponsor two um, breast cancer support uh, programs. One is for English-speaking patients. One is for Spanish-speaking patients. And so we're with these patients for a long time. Our first patient who walked through the program's door 20-plus uh, years ago was actually our first patient who was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she is still alive and well, and she's one of our best ambassadors for the program. She continues to participate and come back. And so, um, again, we have that longevity with individuals, and, and we stay with them all of the way. So we help them to understand. We introduce them to clinical trials, talk about what clinical trials are, what options they have, how the, that um, clinical trials may or may not be appropriate for them. We really do try to provide whatever support is needed. Uh, there's also been conversation about barriers, right? So things like transportation or needing time off of work or needing support um, in other ways. And we, we work to do all of those things so that barriers to cancer don't impede care because we know that making sure that individuals transition from one point of, you know, from diagnosis to treatment in a timely manner really is important in terms of long-term outcomes. And then sometimes on to trusted ambassador. That was such a, a fascinating little anecdote you told there about um, one of your earliest patients now being an ambassador. Tell us a little bit more about her if you can. Yeah, so I, I will not share her name because I haven't asked to share her name, but she is right. an absolute dynamo. She's an absolute dynamo. She she came into our program again, uh, came in through the community, was screened, not knowing that she had any symptoms and was ultimately diagnosed with cancer and is still alive and well. She's a part of our survivor group, which is called Living and Loving Life. Actually, Survivor Circle is how it's been deemed, Living and Loving Life. Uh, we did Pre-COVID, COVID has changed many things, but pre-COVID, we do an annual um, bowling outing where the staff of the Baltimore City Cancer Program bowl against the survivors. They often beat us, but it's named for her because bowling <laughs> is something that she enjoys. And so, you know, we celebrate her. We celebrate her life. I think one of the things that's important to note is that people often if they're diagnosed with cancer, connote that with a diagnosis of death or an ultimate death, and that's not the case. And so we really do work hard to celebrate our survivors and to recognize our survivors. So those who are newly diagnosed know this could be you 20 years from now too. Wow, well, well, that's a very moving story. Thank you so much. And the bowling sounds fantastic. <laughs> I want to ask you a little bit, little bit more about trust. Because sure. it's not just that we have to have those ambassadors speaking and looking like the people are addressing, right? But the whole question of trust in science, trust in medicine has become so politicized and undermined at the moment. Are you facing more problems recently with a growth in mistrust on social media and other places? 
I can't speak. I mean, on social media, it's certainly there. I think mistrust right. is huge. I think COVID, right, has highlighted mm-hmm. that because there's mm-hmm. there's great mistrust in terms of the vaccine, in terms of diagnosis, in terms of the impact, in terms of the communities that were hardest hit by COVID. And that has ramifications um, outside mm-hmm. of COVID itself. So certainly having many, many conversations with patients, um, both as a, as a family doc and within the Baltimore City Cancer Program to address trust, definitely. Actually, one of our outreach workers just two weeks ago was speaking with Rhonda Silva and I. We, we serve as a super supervisory team for the Baltimore City Cancer Program about her experiencing uh, experience canvassing in Baltimore City, um, knocking on doors, just trying to make folks aware of the services that are offered through the Baltimore City Cancer Program. And she, she shared with us that she encountered multiple individuals who said, no, I'm not interested. I just don't trust. You know, I don't trust. Um, and her having to take the time to explain and say, you know, I'll come back again. Because I think that's something that's important as well. Even as a family physician, I can think of patients where I've said, you know, it's time for you to get your mammogram. It's time for you to get your mammogram. And it's not always on the first time that you ask. People aren't always ready. They may have other things going on in their lives. They may have mistrust. But I think with consistency and time, building rapport and building trust, people often come around. But you have to meet people where they are. And, and acknowledge that people are not always going to move forward on the timeline that you may want them to. So cancer and COVID are so very, very different, obviously. But were the strategies you were able to share with people who were addressing COVID fears and mistrust from your own experience dealing with a population that needed to have outreach and vice versa? Was there an interplay there? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, certainly within the exam room, right? You're you're often having conversations with people, um, often having to share personal stories as well. You know, I, I, I have multiple times in the past been asked by patients, you know, you're asking me to go get this mammogram. Have you ever done it? Do you understand what it is? And so I think being able to take real world examples, right? People want to know that what you're offering to them is something that would, would you offer that to your family? Would you offer that to your parents? Would you offer it to yourself? And, and having some of those conversations. Obviously, always wanting to speak about the evidence as well, but people can can get that information. I think people are aware of the resources and know how to get that information, but they really want to hear from you as a trusted physician or as a trusted uh, community member that what they're doing is, is okay. And so just giving that endorsement certainly is important. Well, you're right there in Baltimore with Johns Hopkins, a towering institution there, also the place that has the history with Henrietta Lacks. How do stories, personal stories like that, resonate in the work you do? Maybe you can remind us a little bit of the facts and tell us how it plays out. Yeah, so the story of Henrietta Lacks, right, is very touching, especially because she was a woman who was diagnosed with cervical cancer, right? So it's very relevant to a conversation on cancer. And and uh, literally her, her body tissues were taken and used to advance science without her knowledge, without her consent. And people in Baltimore are very aware of her story. I have patients who share stories of Henrietta Lacks and others. Um, I think she is a well-known figure in history, but people have many of their own personal anecdotes. And um, I'm not from Maryland originally. I I grew up in Michigan and came out here for residency training. And as patients share these stories, it's just important to sit and listen, to understand the cultural context within which we operate, to understand the stories and experience of uh, families who've been in Baltimore for multiple generations. And these stories are true. Um, They're they're oftentimes extremely disheartening. 
Um, but then we talk about changes that have been made to move forward, you know, that um, hopefully we've learned from our past. As we move forward, we use those experiences to make ourselves better as we continue to move forward and to never repeat um, some of the ugly things that have happened in our medical histories. I want to ask you a question that I asked Dr. Rivers as well about insurance. Obviously, you're free from some of these concerns in the in the treating of your patients. But if you want to see a change in this country, would you enlarge the ACA? What, what path forward do you see ahead to help people across the country who are struggling with these difficult diagnoses and even getting screening? Yeah, yeah. I think I would echo what Dr. Rivers said. Absolutely. Expansion of the Affordable Care Act at a minimum, right? Uh, I mean, a, a key component uh, is just access, having access and knowing that access to care is not going to put you in debt. There's a lot of um, news actually driving into work today, just talking about the high percentage of Americans who have significant medical debt um, that people potentially avoid healthcare because they don't want to go into debt. And so having insurance coverage for comprehensive, holistic, um, quality care is essential. It's essential. And, and, and absolutely, I think expansion of the um, ACA is, is, is one way to get that done. Dr. Shauna Natiri, thank you so much for the work you're doing to help address some of these inequities in Baltimore and beyond. Thank you. Thank you for this very important conversation, Francis. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.